You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Nice to see you all here. Um, are Max and Alana here this morning? Yes, well, you know, we hear about world events and things happen on the other side of the world, but they can also affect us right here. And one of them is the situation with the Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. And Max, um, John Schroeder, John and Kim were telling me this morning that Max has, Max is Ukrainian. Is that right, Max? Max from the Ukraine. And he has uh, friends and family who live there, some in Kiev, which is, um, if who knows, but it looks like sort of the target point if there's going to be some kind of a, a Russian invasion. So I just wanted us um, to pray. Um, yeah, why don't we stand? Let's stand together and let's pray for that situation that the Lord would intervene and that he would, Lord, we do, we pray that you would intervene in that, uh, in that situation. Um, Lord, we pray especially for Max's family and friends, that you would give them wisdom, uh, you would give them direction, you would show them what they should do, and that you would take care of them, Lord. We just pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. And a friend of mine, Pam Hardister, has gotten sick. How many of you have already gotten sick? <laughs> okay. How many of you would like to not get sick? Well, that's that's who I want to pray for this morning. <laughs> Is everybody? Everybody. But we're going to focus. Father, we ask for Pam Hardister that you would touch, um, touch her life. Lord, we ask for every uninvited virus to leave, to leave in Jesus' name. Lord, we pray for all of us. Let's say us. Let's just say us. Lord, touch us and keep us. Um, Lord, touch Andy as he's getting well protect the whole Squires family and everyone else, everyone else. Lord, we love you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Jesus, thank you. Amen. All right. I'm calling this a part two last week. I've, um, I spoke on Isaiah 45.3, which was, uh, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. And in Isaiah 45, the Lord determined to reveal himself in an unusual way by promising to give us hidden riches from places we would never ex expect. Treasures of darkness. The Lord knows us by name. He knows how to give us what we need. He knows how to restore the things that we've lost, the things that have been 
stolen from us and things we may never knew that we'd lost. And I was thinking about things like purity, innocence, connection, all the different things God wants us to have and live in. God knows how to restore, but we have to realize we are part of that restoration process. So when we're in places where we cannot see the way forward, confusion, times of trouble, distress, even misery or sorrow, God has set himself to restore to us what we lost. I thought, talk, talked about David last week when I was writing some of my notes here. I wrote, poor David. Everybody say, poor David. Poor David. Last week, David was at Ziklag and the Amalekites had burned the city, kidnapped the wives, all their property. His own people talked of stoning him. So the Bible tells us that David did what? Strengthened himself in the Lord or encouraged himself. And that's such um, an important responsibility we have is ultimately it's my job to encourage me. You hear what I'm saying? That's part of my responsibility as a believer. Now, that's not the only thing that works on our behalf. You're here this morning. I'm sure you're here hoping you'll leave depressed. But no, you have a responsibility, and there is a process. There are things you can do to encourage yourself. So last week, David was threatened by the people he was leading. City was burned. Property, wives, children, everybody stolen. And so we worked our way through last week. And I hope you go back and listen to that if you didn't. I think it would really help you. But this week, David's in another mess. He's walking through another dark period from which the Lord wants to give him treasures. And so let me give you some of the background of this um, second dark period that David had. Um, through a long process, if I remember correctly, and I think I do, David had, I think, five sons. And Absalom was David's third son. And he stole the hearts of many of the prominent leaders in Israel. Then he betrayed David, proclaimed himself as king, place of his father. And so David and many of his men fled Jerusalem heartbroken, afraid for their lives, uncertain as to how they were going to feed the men they didn't know where they were going to sleep. They did not know where they were going to go. And he did not know if he would even outlive this major crisis. So think about that. These are the things David went through. Everybody wants to be a spiritual giant. Nobody wants to go through the spiritual giant process. But to be strong spiritually, there are things you will have to go through. And David is a little bit of a picture of that here. And so in that situation, uncertain, what did David do? How did he not only weather this situation, how did he overcome 
in it and through it. Here's what David did. He wrote a song. What do you do with songs you really like? You listen to them over and over again. How many of you have songs that are life changers for you that when you sing them, something happens inside that makes a difference? Well, there's something even about the repetitive nature of um, significant concepts, ideas that reinforce who we are. If you complain all the time, you're going to have a very, you're going to have a more difficult life than if you don't complain all the time. You hear me? That's the way that works. Your words make a difference. Your attitude makes a difference. So David wrote a song of proclamation. And we're going to take a look at this song. We're going to find an amazing faith-filled response and demonstration of remarkable trust as David regained his strength through singing Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm. It's a song filled with positive, life-affirming declarations about David's God and his life. And you have a really clear picture of David's condition that comes right out of this story of Absalom's rebellion. 2 Samuel 15.30 describes David this way as he fled from his son. So David went up by the mount, by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. So David was weeping and he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. Now I'm giving you all this information because I want to give you the context of the 23rd Psalm. You know, to us, the 23rd Psalm is this wonderful little pastoral expression of the Lord being our shepherd and gee whiz, he's a great guy and ooh, he does good things for us. And man, I just love laying here thinking about the 23rd Psalm. And that is not the context. The context is everything David sang, wrote, and prayed in the 23rd Psalm of affirmation and confidence was the exact opposite of where he was living when he wrote it. Are you listening to me? Here's that psalm. Here's what we're going to do. We're all going to pray, say, repeat this at the end of our time this morning, but I want us to do it in the context of how much a tool of warfare it is as opposed to just a great little gee and God great song. So here it is. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Who can say the next one? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup, oh my, my cup runs over. Surely, oh, what a word. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So here's, here's a vital spiritual principle. Proclamation is one of our essential tools, spiritual tools to overcome life's difficulties. I was, I was thinking about that idea when I remembered Paul's instruction in Ephesians 6 about putting on the whole armor of God so that we could withstand the wiles of the devil. And he talks about standing three times. In verse 11, he says, put on, put on, you put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Again, in verse 13, therefore, take up, you take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. And then down in verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. If you are not taking, putting on, taking up, what would it be like to go into battle with an adversary in hand-to-hand combat and have no sword? You know, people, and I understand this, and I say I understand it, I don't understand it, but that's how I understand it, is that we were born into a war zone. We were born into a fallen world. You with me? Bad things happen. Why? Well, see, that's what I don't necessarily understand. I just know they do. I just know that's where we are, and I just know the Lord wants to equip us, right? That much I do understand. So Paul says, put on, take up, take. Three times he instructs us to be active in the expression of faith. Well, how do you do that? Well, one way is you proclaim what God has given us in his word. The sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. Now, here's the tricky part, and it will work against your reason. And we can't control God through our proclamation. Everybody understand that. We don't control God. But when we have proclamations that are contrary to our circumstances, what we're actually doing is teaming up with God to gain from him what he wants us to have in the midst of it. Do you listen? Do you hear? Do you understand? Do you see that? I think it's vital. So sometimes we need to declare God's promises the promises of his word, the personal promises he's given us in the face of negative circumstances. Last week, you can go back and hear this, uh, when I was speaking on the treasures of darkness and the truth that both in black and white photography and in life, the way we manage our negatives determines the integrity, the vitality of our positives. That's what negatives in life are for. They're a developmental process. That's a redemptive way to look at problems. They're a developmental process to bring me into a place of great positivity. 
It may even sound to yourself like you aren't being truthful, that you're in denial, that you're being foolish when you declare some of these things. Well, welcome to this aspect of the life of faith because this is part of it. It's not all of it, but it's part of it. But one of God's methods to help us overcome our situations, to develop our negatives in the dark, is to give us contrary or contradictory proclamations that seem to our natural mind to be utter foolishness. But that then is the foolishness of God. It's the foolishness of God, the Bible tells us, that he uses to save us. 1 Corinthians one twenty five, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. And verse 18 in that same 1 Corinthians 1, For the message of the cross is foolishness. How many of you thought about that? Foolishness. To those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Those are remarkable verses. Think about the word encouragement. How would you encourage yourself? You're going through something terrible. What would you do? How many of you talk to yourself? All of you do. How many of you are kind to yourself? Some of you are. But everybody's talking to themselves at some level. Come on, you know that's right. You can't shut that guy up sometimes. But technically, how would you encourage yourself? What would you do if you're in a mess? Well, one way you could encourage yourself is you could say, I'm in a mess now, but I won't be in a mess the rest of my life. That's encouraging. There's a ray of hope. In other words, you would say something. You would focus on a reality larger than the reality you're experiencing, and there are those realities. There are. That's what it is to be a Christian. We believe in a God we never saw who died on the cross for us 2,000 years before we were born. And when we put faith in that particular person, Jesus, we're saved and something remarkable happened. How much sense does that make? Zero. It's foolishness, but it's genius. I can't get into that now. But I am get excited about that. Ah. <sighs> Psalm 23 is David's declaration of the goodness of God and how David understood God's heart towards David himself regardless of his circumstances. And then he wrote it and it was preserved for us today because he's talking about the same person we know. We just need to get to know him better, the Lord. David strengthened himself in the Lord. This is one way he did it, by proclamation and rehearsing what he knew was ultimately true about the Lord. Think about this. Where are most battles won initially? They're won in our minds before they're won in our circumstances. That's why oftentimes until you get your mind right, things can get right and you won't recognize it. I could give you... Jeremiah is either 17 or 19 and prove that I won't, but that's true. God could send you good, but since your heart's darkened by unbelief or whatever you're given into, 
You don't even see his hand move when he moves, when he comes. Okay, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I read in one translation that shepherd is a Hebrew word, which has a double meaning. It means shepherd, but it also means best friend. How about that? Donna was talking about the Lord as her best friend this morning from this verse. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David humbles himself to identify himself as a sheep. From experience, he knew well what sheep were like. Why would David know what sheep were like? He was a shepherd. Characteristics of sheep. Dependent, prone to stray, weak, dumb, question mark. They may not be dumb. They just got herd instincts to get them in trouble. Easily frightened, demanding, and defenseless. So when David says, the Lord is my shepherd and I'm a sheep, he was identifying with what he knew very well about those animals. And so that place of humility was vital. And it's very important with God. So David declares, the Lord is my shepherd. And so at one point here in this circumstance, David didn't see himself as the great king of Israel. But as the dependent sheep needing protection and care who had no idea if he would even live through this encounter and experience with his son. The second part of the verse, I shall not want, should actually read, I lack nothing. So there is David with nothing proclaiming, I lack nothing. He has nothing, proclaims he lacks nothing. Think of it. Nothing to eat, nowhere to live, runs in fear of his life. He proclaims, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. One of the great German commentators, Colin Delich, wrote, he who has the possessor of all things, himself has all things. He lacks nothing. Of course, that's got to work its way out in your life. Agreed. But the Lord is the preserver, the director He's our everything. I think about this verse too. I just, I want to thank you, Lord, for the scripture. His Second Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able, God is able to make all grace abound toward you. That you, is there a you in here? That you, where is you? You in here. That you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. God is able to make all grace abound towards you. That you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Paul wrote that. The same Paul who wrote, he knew how to do without, he knew how to be abased. So what am I saying? I'm just saying your baseline is we have a God who's able to do whatever it is we need for him to do. We really do. Actually, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, that verse I just wrote was in the context of generosity. That was written, and, and we need to hear this. We do. Reaping and sowing, that was written in the context of Paul said, if you reap sparingly, you'll sow sparingly. But if you sow 
If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow in abundance, you'll reap in abundance. For my God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Powerful. Is that just the first verse? I think it is. David knew how much sheep needed shepherds. Here's something interesting. As a shepherd who lived with his sheep, what would David eventually smell like? Sheep. But guess what the sheep would begin to smell like? David. Now you think, well, that's odd. Well, it's true, though. That's identification. David identified with the sheep. The sheep identified with David. But what am I saying? Our great shepherd, our Lord Jesus, became a sheep to fully identify with us and understand us experientially. One could say he smelled like us. He took on our nature so that we could do what? Smell like him. Take on his nature. That's what it is to be born again. It's to take on the nature of Jesus. For he made him to be no to be he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's a great great verse. Okay, verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. This morning Kim was talking about people's rest who uh, their rest has been disturbed but in this verse too over and over in just one simple verse comes the idea of how much God wants us to rest he makes me lie down where green pastures he leaves me beside what the still waters and actually that word means waters of rest that phrase but anxiety is an ancient foe. How many of you are aware of that? Anxiety is an enemy. It's not a friend. I remember about two years ago, I woke up one morning way before daylight, anxious and, you know, things going through my mind. And the Lord showed me my grandfather's porch my grandfather lived his whole life in a little town called Due West, South Carolina, with no air conditioning. His place of refuge or relaxation, refreshing, was his screen porch. And so I would worry a while in my half-awake, half-asleep state. Then I would see my, a picture of my grandfather's porch. Then I would go worry a little bit more. Then I would see his porch again. Then I would worry a little bit more. And then I understood that my grandfather's porch represented my grandfather's place of rest that he was inviting me into. He wanted me to be at peace. And we, we can find that place of rest. We can. It's ours. It's given to us. We need to learn we need to labor to enter into that rest, it says in Hebrews. Mentally, physically. So David has nowhere to rest or lie down. 
Yet what does he say? Verse 2, about the place he has to rest. Verse 3 is, restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So the 23rd Psalm really is a celebration of God's desire to restore us. Every verse, every verse is a declaration of God's personal care for us. And that um, phrase, restores my soul, you can say it this way. God fetches back my vitality. How many of you have lost some vitality? Yeah, God will go fetch it, bring it back, body, soul, spirit. It means God causes my life force to, restore, to, to return. He restores me. He revives my life. One of the, one of the commentators uh, wrote this. It's for God to bring back the soul that is, as it were, flown away so that it comes back to itself again. God will fully restore our souls. Thank you, Jesus. And he leads us in the path of righteousness for his namesake. And I wondered what that meant. And then I realized, I understood it. God will lead us in the right path, a path of righteousness, of living a certain way because of who he is. Because of who he is. He has that much care over our lives. Verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Think about David saying this in this condition, this situation. I will fear no evil. Why? For you, you are with me. Let's say together, God is with me. God is with me. God, God is with me. You are with me. David would say in this psalm, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The staff would guide the sheep and the rod would defend the sheep from predators. The word comfort means to preserve. To In this case, it would be to, pervert, to preserve to David the feeling of security and a cheerful spirit. Wouldn't it be wonderful if in the midst of our difficulties, we could be overwhelmingly joyful. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be wonderful? Do you think that's possible? Do you think it is? Do you think? What do you think? You think it is? I think it is, but... Walking in that is a little bit different than thinking it's possible, isn't it? Sure it is. To preserve to David the feeling of security, therefore a cheerful spirit. The term valley of the shadow of death, death is not in the original languages, but it means, it's a phrase that means a valley of total darkness, a picture that refers to those dark, bitter, negative experiences we may have in life. So here's what we're seeing, verses 1 through 4. 
Here's what David was proclaiming. God's protection, God's comfort, freedom from lack. Reclamation and restoration of his soul, mind, emotion, and will. Rest, peace, refreshing, guidance into the best way to live because of God's goodness. And deliverance from fear and calamitous circumstances. The constant sense of the nearness and presence of God. Is the 23rd Psalm up there on the screen? I think they have it. How many verses are on that one slide there? One, two, how many? One through six, all of them? Okay. Well, here's, here's what I want to... Let's ask this question. How is it that God does everything he says he's going to do in those first four verses? I just read you that review. Protection, comfort, freedom from lack, restored soul, emotion, will, rest, peace, deliverance, no fear. How is it that David was going to experience the blessings and benefits of those four first verses of his song that he was singing? Well, Hebrews the Hebrew writers will present a premise or promise, then they follow it with practical applications or an explanation or example of how the first statements are actually fulfilled. How is it that David will experience those blessings? Well, we find the answer in verse 5. It's the oil and it's the overflowing cup. It's the oil, it's the overflowing cup. It's by encountering the person of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, you prepare a table where? Before me in the presence of my enemies. And then it says this strange thing, because it's not talking about Cheeseburgers and, and uh, hot dogs and <laughs> prime rib. Their knives and forks, those aren't there on this table. It's a spiritual table God can prepare for us in the presence of our enemies. What enemies? Well, Fear, all the stuff that we face in life. Oh, how does he do it? You anoint my head with oil. You fill my cup till it runs over. So we see in the psalm that the, the image of God changes from a shepherd to a host of a great feast. And David describes the benefits of knowing the Lord as a shepherd, but then he shifts to how those benefits are imparted. Here's how they're imparted. God prepares a table for me in the presence of my, my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. He runs, he, my cup runs over. It's a spiritual one. We need to tap into this. Believers down through the ages 
have confronted horrible situations, but they've been enabled by the power of the Spirit of God not to just survive, but to be overcomers, to, to actually flourish. Now, is it easy? If it was easy, everybody could do it. It's not easy. It's a developmental process, but it's available. And a, a friend of mine had a, a marvelous encounter with the Lord where he was praying for this little baby. And the Lord said to him, it wasn't even his baby, it was somebody else's, but his heart was breaking for this little child. And the Lord said, if that's important to you, it's important to me. But we don't feel that way. But God says, if it's important to you, it's, it's, Im, it's important to me. Well, you know, God can take us out of stuff. He can take us out of trouble or he can remove the trouble or he can sustain us through it with the ultimate goal of us not just surviving, but overcoming. And there's a great Second Corinthians 2.14 says, thanks be to God who always, somebody please just say always, always leads or causes us leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us, through that process, he diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. You anoint my head with oil. Shepherds used to anoint the heads of their sheep with oil. How many of you have heard this to protect them from parasites? Anybody ever heard this? Parasites would infect um, the sheep's noses and that worms would go up into their brains and drive them crazy through irritation. Is there a spiritual parallel there? Anybody irritated? And then the source of those irritations, the parasites were transferred from sheep to sheep. Make these parallels, folks. By rubbing their heads together. Sheep would actually bang their heads on rocks and on each other trying to stop the irritation. Talk about believers banging their heads against each other. This is too personal. But that anointing oil would protect the sheep from the parasites. In spiritual terms, the Lord wants to anoint our heads with the oil of gladness. The anointing oil of heaven's gladness that overcomes us. We overwhelm and our circumstances are overcome and protects us from irritations. That oil can speak of the oil of joy. Hebrews 1.9 this is talking about Jesus. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, we don't have this image of Jesus, but Jesus was the most joyful person, perhaps in human history, acquainted with sorrow, but anointed with joy. That's what we find in Hebrews 1.9. Oil of gladness. Oil of gladness. That's what it is to walk with Jesus 
in a, do we understand he was happy? My cup runs over. Great verse. David also wrote in Psalm 16, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. What must fullness of joy look like, ladies and gentlemen? Does it look like normal joy? At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So here's this cup that overflows. An overflowing cup, this is not overflowing because it's not overfull. But David says one of the keys to the, to accessing all of these things. Now this isn't the only key, but it is part, is an overflowing cup. And the, um, two different Septuagint translations. Now the Septuagint was the version of the Old Testament scriptures that the apostles would read. It was called the Septuagint. My cup overflows was translated, you intoxicate me with the finest wine. Now, that's not a comfortable Baptist uh, or even American Christian in, in so many ways, evangelical concept. But that's what the apostles would read. In Psalm 23, they wouldn't read my cup overflows. They would read, you intoxicate me with the finest wine. How dare you? No, that's what it, the Douay-Rheims Bible translate that verse as, and my chalice, which inebriates me, how goodly it is. That's an overflowing cup. God wants to do that for us. Now, you might decide, oh, Robin's out on a limb here in his emphasis on the need for joy, but before you saw that limb off, because you're on it too. You don't really, you just think you cut me off, but you're going too. Please recognize how scarcely, how infrequently, how rarely excessive joy has been regarded as essential in our lives. And when Jesus loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, in other words, it was holy, holiness, he was anointed with an oil of gladness. That is not your typical picture of a holy person. Usually holy people are frowning. <laughs> I mean, what has been represented? Being filled with the Spirit in the way I'm talking about can absolutely make you speak French revolutionize our experience in, <laughs> in a way <laughs> very few other things can. The oil of gladness <laughs> and intoxicating joy of the Spirit can elevate us and enable us to live above our problems. Have you ever been so happy you forgot your problems? Paul said, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, God doesn't always remove our enemies. Sometimes he prepares a table for us in their presence. 
In the natural world, there's an altitude too high for snakes to live. He wants to elevate us above the spiritual snake line, a spiritual dimension where we function in a way where things that used to hinder us don't affect us, either any more or likely did. That's what joy can do. It's part of our spiritual inheritance, being seated in heavenly places. See that as a spiritual altitude that affects our natural attitude. Oh my, how, how much joy has been missing from the church. Who would agree with me? Yes. But it's a basic response to the gospel. If you read the Bible, it's a basic response to the gospel. If you get the gospel right, there's a joy element that wells up in your soul. You don't have to fake it. It happens when you're believing that the good news is actually good. For William, thank you. William Tyndale was a Bible translator, and he defined gospel this way. Evangelion, or gospel, is a Greek word, and it signifies good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that makes a man's heart glad, makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. That's what Tyndale said. Well, he was convicted of heresy and martyred by strangulation and then burned at the stake in 1536. But in light of his death, his translation of the word gospel is even more striking because perhaps Tyndale actually found that kind of sustaining joy in the gospel that fortified him during that life and prepared him for the martyrdom that came his way. But joy is not only a fruit of the Spirit. It is. It's not only. It's the Lord's own personal joy that the Holy Spirit wants to impart to us. How do we know that? Nehemiah 8.10. The joy of who? The Lord. The joy of the Lord. The Lord's own personal joy is your strength. And it's a manifestation of the presence of the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but what? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We don't have access to any old kind of joy. We get Jesus's. I regard... Jesus as being the perfect man and that he was a singularly joyful person. I just read this, that he was anointed with the oil of gladness. It's in the Psalms and it's in Hebrew chapter 1. I love the fact that the Bible connects righteousness and hating lawlessness with being joyful. And Jesus was a rejoicer. Luke ten twenty one describes Jesus this way. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, and I'm not going to read what he said, but he rejoiced in spirit, which has been translated to jump for joy, to exalt or rejoice greatly. Jesus' demonstration was the very picture of Tyndale's definition and description of a joyful person. What do you make of a jumping Jesus? <laughs> Have you ever seen Jesus as jumping for, for joy? 
Oh, it's fair, brother. How about jumping Jesus? Don't be messing with my sad Jesus. Don't worry. I ain't going to be messing with your sad Jesus. The Bible tells us Jesus accepted the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him. Well, people say, we're that joy. But guess what else was that joy? Joy. Come on. Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Oh, here we go. To console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. Jesus would console the mournful, giving them beauty for ashes. He gave me beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that we might be trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he might be glorified. So it's for us to become strong so that he's glorified. That's what that says. Verse six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Absalom was pursuing David, but there was someone much bigger pursuing David, and he had goodness and mercy that followed him. Okay. I want the worship team to come up. And we're, who knows? I don't know. Um, We're just going to see what happens. But one of the things I wanted us to do was in context of why David wrote that psalm and the situation he was in, I want us to consider our situations. And then in a minute, we're going to proclaim, pray, declare that 23rd Psalm together. How many of you are in? Yeah. Well, we didn't practice this. I don't know how it's going to work, but I'm sure it won't be my fault. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we're asking that you would, from here on out, release your, go- your, uh, your joy and your gladness. Lord, Lord, we ask. We ask. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. 
For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.